KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Wednesday, May 12th. Big money for California's big homeless problem. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. The Food and Drug Administration has approved the use of the Pfizer vaccine on children ages 12 to 15. Dr. John Bradley is the director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Rady Children's Hospital. We need enough people immunized so that if virus is introduced from somewhere else, it doesn't continue to spread. And of course, if kids don't get infected, they can't spread it. Today, the CDC's Vaccine Advisory Committee will hold a meeting to review the use of the shot for this new age group and consider giving it final approval. San Diego Unified School District Superintendent Cindy Martin was confirmed as the country's next Deputy Secretary of Education on Tuesday. As second-in-command, Martin will oversee the day-to-day operations in the U.S. Department of Education as schools recover from the pandemic. Martin will serve under Secretary Miguel Cardona, the former Connecticut Chief of Schools. Padres star shortstop Fernando Tatis Jr. is injured and also tested positive for COVID-19 this week, though he is reportedly asymptomatic. The Padres made the announcement before their game in Colorado on Tuesday. Tatis Jr. was injured earlier this month with an inflamed shoulder. He leads the Padres with nine homers and 23 runs. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Governor Gavin Newsom was in San Diego on Tuesday to announce a $12 billion proposal aimed at tackling the state's homeless crisis. KPBS's Melissa May caught up with the governor at Kearney Vista Apartments. This is not just doubling down on strategies that we know work. This is an order of magnitude investment into transforming the homeless crisis in the state of California. The former residence in Kearney Mesa is part of Project Home Key, a program that turns hotels, motels, and apartments into homes for people experiencing or at risk of homelessness. Resident Lindsay Prescott was homeless, pregnant, and an addict. She was given the opportunity to move into the Kearney Vista apartments. And because the Housing Commission allowed for me to let, let us live here, I got my daughter back. I'm 18 months sober. She'll be 19 months old, 22nd of this month. And I am beyond grateful. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria fully supports Project Home Key. This is more than a home. It is the services that will keep people housed and ultimately break the cycle of homelessness, providing things like case management, mental health counseling, employment assistance. People in San Diego County experiencing homelessness saw a sharp rise last year. The Regional Task Force on the Homeless found more than 38,000 people received some form of housing and services, the most ever. The county proposes $85 million to match the commitment to end homelessness by the state. And that was KPBS's Melissa May. 
With the recall election of Governor Gavin Newsom all but certain to happen this fall, candidates who want his job are doing what they can to stand out. Rancho Santa Fe businessman John Cox is bringing a real live Kodiak bear to campaign stops. And he was greeted in San Diego Tuesday morning with protesters who say using a bear to campaign is shameful. KPBS's John Carroll was there. The theme of Republican John Cox's campaign is right there on his bus. And this is the beast in question, a Kodiak bear named Tag. The reason the bear is here is to demonstrate that we're going to have to be a beast to tackle these special interests. Cox says Governor Newsom is captive to special interests. He pointed to Newsom's dinner at the exclusive French Laundry restaurant last November with two lobbyists from the California Medical Association. Newsom later apologized. He said attending the dinner was a mistake. Cox ticked off a number of issues he says Newsom has failed to address. But Cox had company for this news conference. Animal activists from lions and tigers and bears who only had one issue in mind. It's time to stand up and be the animal's voice and stop using animals. Bobby Brink founded and now runs Lions, Tigers and Bears, an animal sanctuary in Alpine. These animals are pulled as babies from their mama and then they're used for nothing more than exactly this, to be trained and carted around from place to place in an enclosed trailer for nothing more than profit and exploitation. I'm an animal lover. I, I believe in taking care of animals. Uh, God gave them to us to enjoy this paradise of an earth. Cox says it's time to look forward and move beyond what he says is a failed governor. He says Newsom has mishandled a number of issues, including homelessness and the state's exposure to wildfires. But Brink says when it comes to the treatment of animals, Cox is the one living in the past. This is the old days and it's the new days. We don't need to use animals for this anymore. And the public doesn't know thousands of these animals are used like this and then dumped. We're in the midst of a 30-day period where people who signed the recall petition can withdraw their signatures. If enough remain after the withdrawal period, the recall election will move forward, probably in November. Five previous attempts to recall Newsom failed. And that was KPBS's John Carroll. Governor Newsom's proposed second round of stimulus payments for Californians includes money for undocumented workers. But many believe that the money allocated to help the undocumented is not enough. KPBS's Max Rivlin-Nadler has more. North Park resident Luis had been out of work since being laid off from a restaurant last year at the beginning of the pandemic. He's undocumented, so we're protecting his full name. He was one of the 1,000 undocumented people who got an emergency $500 debit card from the state at the beginning of the pandemic. But since then, he hasn't received any further support from the government, even though he paid taxes in the United States for six years. Undocumented people don't qualify for unemployment insurance. It was tough for him to find work even after businesses began to reopen. Most of the places were closed, so it wasn't like jobs available, basically. On Monday, Governor Gavin Newsom announced a new $500 round of stimulus payments for undocumented people, on top of a $600 payment approved by the legislature earlier this year. Luis said if he was to receive the total additional $1,100, he would save it because he still doesn't have access to unemployment insurance. This kind of money arrives. Going to be able, I want to be able to save it. Well, we want to be able to save it in case in the future something else happens, you know, like we don't know what's going to happen. So, right to 
save the money and be prepared for for next round if something happens. This lack of security for undocumented workers won't be solved by these checks, says Lucas Zucker, with the Central Coast Alliance United for a Sustainable Economy. His group has been pushing for larger checks to the state's two million undocumented people, while the state runs a huge budget surplus. A one-time $500 payment, um, you know, it, it's it's important and it's needed, uh, but it's it's not even enough to make one month's rent um, for for folks who are really struggling with job loss um, and and really nowhere to turn. Luis has gone back to work in recent weeks at a different restaurant from his old one, often working more than 45 hours a week. He's watched as his old co-workers have been supported all year by unemployment insurance. Oh, nothing, like, you know, like, whole year, like, okay, whatever, you know. But yeah, it made me feel angry, like, less. He's hoping that California will use some of its record-breaking surplus to better compensate undocumented workers like himself. And that was KPBS's Max Revlin-Nadler. A treatment that's proven to reduce hospitalizations and deaths in COVID-19 patients is being offered in San Diego, but not enough people are taking advantage of it. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman says officials are trying to get the word out. Early onset of symptoms is key, so really as soon as they test positive, we'd like to get them in treated right away. Pauline Lucatero is director of nursing at Family Health Centers. She says the monoclonal antibody treatment is simple and fast, requiring just one visit to deliver proteins that attack the virus. It takes about 30 minutes to infuse, and we observe for about an hour just to ensure that there's no allergic reactions that the patients will be experiencing. And if they do, we're prepared for that. Since December, around 250 people have come in for the treatment between this facility in Chula Vista and another in Hillcrest. But family health centers can do much more, and it's also being offered free for those who don't have insurance. The key is to get everybody treated. There shouldn't be any reason for any patients to get admitted to hospitals if we have this drug available for for them. And that story from KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Coming up, San Diego City leaders say it will take time to shift police funding away from the police department and into social services and other safety programs. Also, what happens now that gang injunctions are gone? We'll have more on that next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. It's going to take time. That's the word from San Diego City leaders as they consider the task of shifting funding away from the police department and into social services and other public safety programs. Some city council members are calling for a comprehensive analysis of how the police budget could be changed and funding priorities be shifted. But is there enough time to consider all these steps now before next year's city budget is finalized? David Garrick is a reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune who's covering the topic. He spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh. Here's that interview. Who is calling for this comprehensive analysis? 
Uh, four council members, at least, uh, you know, some council members didn't really comment, but they seem to sort of tacitly agree. Uh, but Monica Montgomery Stepp, who's head of the city council's public safety committee, Sean Elo Rivera, uh, and Joe LaCava were sort of the loudest voices at a, at a budget hearing recently. And what would an analysis like that include? Well, um, it's, it's interesting sometimes how things work out. The head of the police labor union, Jack Schaefer, is sort of given the most detailed description we've ever heard, but we still haven't heard exactly what it would be, but it would be an analysis of what functions the police do right now would be better handled by social service agencies, homeless providers, maybe people who specialize in mental illness, because I think sort of the general argument of defund the police, which is a very complicated term that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But the general idea is that there are certain things that the police are not as good at as other people would be, especially social service providers, and that we should shift some of the police's duties to those groups. And is that what the head of the police union is saying, Jack Schaefer, that perhaps they should consider that? Um, you know, I think Jack's point was you shouldn't do anything knee jerk. You shouldn't do anything without thinking it through. His argument was you need to make a thorough study before you do something maybe to gain political points or to cave into political pressure. You need to treat this like an academic exercise, like something that you really have analyzed in every possible way. And yet another caveat that even though you think you may end up spending less, some of the things that are maybe wrong with policing may cost you more. You may have to spend more money for training. You may have to spend more money on something called neighborhood policing, where you, you put police into some of the low income areas and have them sort of build relationships with community leaders. That's a way to reduce crime, but it doesn't cost less. It actually costs more. Now, besides these three or four council members, does shifting funds away from the police have uh, like overall support from the city council? You know, it's interesting to ask that. They've had five new members starting in December. Um, last spring, when this sort of became a national issue, the council was unified in not wanting to do anything aggressive, like just eliminate their police department, as some cities considered. Uh, and it sort of takes small incremental steps, sort of like the ones they're talking about now. With these five new members who all came in in December, you know, the debate really hasn't come up until this past few days. Um, and it appears that you have folks who want to take a, an aggressive look at potentially doing that. And the other folks didn't say they were against it, but they haven't really taken a, a vocal position. So I guess the answer is I'm not certain. You know, as you mentioned, activists started advocating for defunding some police budgets about a year ago. What has San Diego done in that time? Anything? They've made some changes in police procedures with the carotid restraint, and they've uh, created an office of race and equity to study issues that uh, sort of involve racial disparities, which would include police. So those are sort of the, the main issues. Um, they've increased funding for gang prevention, but there are sort of stuff that's on, on the edges as opposed to in the center, you would argue. And that's uh, one thing that the independent budget analyst for the city noted uh, this past week, that uh, a majority of council members in their uh, budget requests, asked the mayor to explore shifting some police funding to other areas. And the mayor really, to Mayor Todd Gloria, really didn't do that. Uh, maybe he's planning to do it soon, but in the initial budget he laid out about two weeks ago, there really isn't any suggestion of shifting money that goes to the police department now to be spent elsewhere. Mayor Gloria has been supported by police unions in the past in his political career. Is that a factor? in how swiftly any reforms will move? I think a critic could say that it, that it would be. 
I, I don't know. I guess we'll have to see how, how it plays out. Certainly, labor unions have a lot of power, but this is also an issue that has so much sunshine on it that, I mean, it, it's it's one where you can't have a union, you know, give you a, a bunch of money in a dark closet and then no one notices what you do. Whatever Todd Gloria does on this issue, everyone will see what happened. And you think he probably has to do what, what the community supports. As you say, there's still a push by advocates like Councilmember Monica Montgomery Stepp to make some small changes in the budget this year along the lines of perhaps shifting some funding. What changes is she talking about? You know, there haven't been specifics, and I would say Sean Elo Rivera, her colleague, is maybe even more the leader of that charge. I think they all agree the big changes can't come now because we haven't studied them thoroughly enough, but let's try to do a few little things. And one uh, example that Sean Elo Rivera came up with was there's a, a new effort of outreach with homelessness by a nonprofit downtown uh, that he thinks is maybe a model for how to take police out of the process, or at least lessen their role in the process, and have a nonprofit group take sort of a more central role. Again, you just thought that was one example of something that could become a model. So I'm guessing that we'll see as the budget is debated over the next four weeks, maybe some proposals like that. So it will be a small chunk of, of police work, not like the overarching one you might see in a year or two after they thoroughly study it. And what is the process? What involved in doing a comprehensive analysis? Is, would the council have to approve a committee? How would that proceed? Yeah, you're, you're ahead of the curve there. I, I don't know, and I haven't heard any specific discussions. If I were to compare it to the way the city typically handles things, they would probably hire an outside consultant to study what other cities have done, uh, look at for best practices across the nation and maybe the world, and then analyze the police budget, which is almost $600 million a year, and see maybe what parts of it they even have any sort of leeway with, because most of it's labor costs. And you know, unless you want to go and fire a slew of police officers, uh, you know, it's hard to shift labor costs aggressively very quickly. So what should we be looking for? What are advocates of police uh, budget reform going to be looking for as the budget process comes to an end here in June? I think they're going to look for some small changes that would be more on, along the lines of defunding the police. And I think the big moment will be when the city announces, OK, we are going to study it. Here's how we're going to study it. Here's the goals of this study. Um, and and it, so that maybe that people can have confidence that the council is putting their money where their mouth is, that they truly legitimately are going to study this and consider changes, as opposed to maybe saying the right things to calm down the, the, the protesters and the p- folks who are frustrated and sort of waiting for it to die down. I believe the council genuinely wants to make change, but a critic could say maybe they're just saying the right things, waiting for this to go away and re- replaced by some other issue. And that was David Garrick, reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune, speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh. Late last month, San Diego DA Summer Steffen announced that her office was dissolving the last remaining gang injunctions in San Diego County. Those are court orders that limit the movement of alleged gang members. KPBS racial justice and equity reporter Christina Kim tells us what happens now that the gang injunctions are gone. Travis Smith hasn't been to his grandmother's house on J Street in southeast San Diego in over a decade. As we walk towards the newly painted blue house, he stops. When I first walked up, it was just like, boom, you know, I got hit with so many memories. This is my daddy's house when he was a kid, you know what I mean? So definitely, you know, through the generations, you know, this is home. It's always going to be home. But for 13 years, the now 37-year-old Smith couldn't go home. 
His name was put on a gang injunction, a court order that determined where he could and couldn't be. His grandmother's house was right in the middle of a restricted area. In 2006, when his name was added to the gang injunction, Smith was a member of the West Coast Crips. Years before, Smith had been convicted of gun possession, as well as drug possession and sales. But he says the crimes weren't gang-related, and he'd already finished his probation. Smith still remembers what went through his head when two gang officers knocked on his mother's door and told him that he was on a gang injunction. How is this going to work? How am I not going to go to this store that I've been going to for 20-some years? How am I not going to go to this park that I've been hanging out at for, you know, how? The main idea behind gang injunctions is if you make it extremely difficult for gang members to congregate or live in a community, they'll eventually go away and the community will be better off. Smith says he understands the need to end gang violence and he doesn't make excuses about his choices. But he is among many who say the injunctions have harmed far more people than they've helped. People like his grandmother who passed away in 2010. They did a number. I mean, not being able to see your grandsons you used to seeing your grandsons out front barbecuing, and then next thing you know, you don't see them, and, you, and you're older. I mean, that's the American dream, right? To get you a house and have your grandsons and your kids dwelling around, right? Well, they took that from us. Many law enforcement leaders have come around to Smith's way of thinking in recent years. San Diego County DA Summer Steffen began removing names from gang injunction lists three years ago. And in April, she announced that her office was ending all of the county's remaining injunctions. The change in Steffen's approach, however, has been slow. In 2019, she was against a recommendation by the city's gang commission to immediately end all injunctions. I may not act as quickly as somebody might like me to act, because I have a duty to take thoughtful, considered action to make sure that I don't have collateral damage. She says the process of methodically reviewing cases for the past few years has changed her mind, even though she's still not convinced the injunctions didn't reduce gang violence during their peak use. Well, what I've learned is that you always have to be open-minded to change and that things that worked in law enforcement years ago may be cast too wide of a net. For Smith, the scars from being caught up in that net run deep, and they won't just go away because there's been a shift in policy. During the visit to his old neighborhood, he heads to Mullen's Market and Liquor Store on the busy corner of Imperial and 30th. As he looks at the building where his former church used to be, two police cars drive by and one parks across the street. This is the, 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 the worst part. I'm not on an injunction. I'm not a part of the gang. And just standing right here, I still feel like, you know what I'm saying? Even seeing this police officer, you know, that, that, that's what I, when I was talking about that trauma from being jacked up by the gang suppression and this is it right here. How do you feel seeing that police right I mean, there? I mean, I thought he was coming from me. Smith is now a minister who's been sober for 14 years and the father of four girls. He says institutions that upheld gang injunctions have a part to play in rebuilding communities. You gotta come back and you have to bring healing with you. After we part ways, Smith will drive 20 miles to get to his current house. He's still undoing years of conditioning that kept him away from these places that used to be home. And that was KPBS racial justice and equity reporter Christina Kim.
And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.